than nothing. No. So for anybody listening, Kelly just agreed that our 100th episode, which should be coming up rather soon, will be a Truth or Dare themed episode. I'm excited. No. Are you excited about that, Kelly? Wrong. Wrong. No. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> He's just play denying now, but we all know Kelly will do it. So anyway, this is episode 81. So we had, do we have a little bit of time in there? This is episode 81 of the snark. Oh my gosh. I almost said snark Alec radio. Cause we were just talking about how this is going to be a particularly long episode. You can tell because we haven't started yet. I haven't even said the name of the episode or what we're doing. And I'm off on a tangent. So you can tell it's going to be long. But this be- well. No, I almost said snark Alec radio because for anybody who remembers us from that, those episodes were a little unwieldy sometimes and could go on for two, three hours on occasion. On average, yeah, two to three hours on average. Yeah. That's true. Never mind. On average, they were going for two, three hours. On occasion, they could go a little bit longer. It was amazing. <laughs> they were interesting times. But this is Squawk Hobbler, episode 81. I'm Mike at Official Pagan on Everything. And joining me, as always, my podcast partner, my soon to be truth or dare cohort. Hey, everybody. Some of that was fake news. It's Kelly at K-E-L-L-Y-T-H-U-L on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we're back for another prisoner exchange. We are. And this is one that was a long time in the making. And it it sort of plays well with our last pairing of prisoner exchanges. So for the last prisoner exchanges we did, the dwarves and, well, I won't, I guess I won't say the the title because I don't want to get us our explicit tag on this one. Don't worry. We'll take care of it later. It's it's covered. It's covered. (laughs) And then, of course, Tony O'Kay's La Bamba were both shorter albums. So now we're going to do a coupling of of longer albums. Specifically this week, we are going to do Nine Inch Nails double album. It's very long. (laughs) They're they're big, massive, the fragile. So, Kelly, before we even get the top line reaction, how familiar, if at all, are you with Nine Inch Nails? So beyond them being referenced in Duke Nukem, so back in the the days of Duke Nukem, the uh, the first person shooter kind of game, the ammo bins were uh, labeled with nine inch nails. Or actually, no, I take that back. Maybe that was Quake. Maybe it was. It Quake. was in fact Quake because nine inch nails were for yeah. Quake. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. My first introduction to nine inch nails was the logo on the ammo in Quake, which was very very cool. And I'm, but really, I didn't. I had I have really no frame of reference. I have no excuse for that either, because particularly as as I listen through this, I go, well, this seems like somebody I should have been familiar with and would enjoy and would be part of my collection. But for whatever reason, our paths had not crossed. Well, I'm glad I'm kind of helping introduce you to it. So before we we jump too far and before I get your your top line reaction, I do want to throw out a little kind of odd caveat here. So I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan, have been for a long time, since I was a kid, really. And there's a bunch of Nine Inch Nails records that we could have done. There's a lot that I, I feel are really strong records. And to be honest, this, while I think is one of their best albums, isn't my favorite Nine Inch Nails record. The reason that I chose this one, though, over doing those ones is there's there's a couple of reasons. So the other ones are more specific reasons that I that I would recommend them. The one that I would choose to be my favorite Nine Inch Nails record was actually recommended by our friend Mel and the list of records that she gave us to talk about. So I felt like if we were going to do that one, I would like to do it as, as a Mel recommendation. But also, I felt like culturally, this particular album is extremely important for reasons that a lot of people don't know, including Nine Inch Nails fans. They don't realize the impact on the way we consume music completely changed because of this one album. So if you don't like the current state of how music is disseminated and absorbed by people, it is entirely because of this album. 
So you should stick around, listen to it, and find out why you you might love or hate this album, depending on your feelings on technology. So Kelly, what was your top line reaction to this? As I mentioned, the probably my biggest takeaway was I should have run into this before because this is I find I found it highly enjoyable. It was a really good listen, uh, so I feel very very positive about it. Uh, there was a sense of relief that while I will not be free of all editing responsibilities from a from a YouTube standpoint, Cobbler Wren will need to kind of come into play. Uh, a little bit later in this album, his his duties will be fairly light. So that was that was a relief. But I just I really enjoyed it and was just still scratching my head on why I hadn't connected to this group earlier. Well, nice. I'm glad I, I could recommend something that you might be checking out more of. And again, Mel did recommend a Nine Inch Nails album that happens to be my favorite one. So I'd like to tackle that at some point as a Mel recommendation. Maybe if she's interested, get her on the episode with us. That'd be good. Lure her in. So this is a double album. There's a lot to get into. So I don't want to take too much time, especially because I'll probably wander off on a tangent here or there as I want to do. So what did you think of the album cover, Kelly? Artistic. uh, Definitely kind of eye-catching. I mean, if you were scanning across artwork, you'd you'd pause to kind of take take it in for a second. Abstract. I mean, kind of effectively tracks with what you're going to get kind of within. But overall, I, I liked it. I just, it was one of those kind of abstract pieces that I felt positively about. Yeah, a lot of their artwork tends to be abstract like that. I would say this more or less fits in with what you'd expect from a Nine Inch Nails album cover. Lighter color palette than maybe some of their other artwork has, and that continues through. If you do have a physical package of it, that continues through the package. Well, sort of. And that is a little a little caveat that we need to throw out there. So there have been a few different editions of this album released. What Kelly and I are discussing today is the traditional mainstream release of this so for anyone who doesn't know as much as i'm a cassette lover as everybody on here knows and kelly is well aware of there was an alternate cassette version of this released at the same time the cd was and then there have been two vinyl releases that one makes a few additional changes and one is a complete overhaul of the album so we're not getting into those we're talking about the standard release of the album help me on that because as i was going through and getting some references on lyrics and coming across all these different variations and i think i even followed up with you one time on there were a couple of youtube playlists out there we're going to be talking about 23 tracks not 25 is that right correct okay good yes <laughs> because if we're talking about 25 I'm not going to have a lot to add on two of them. So. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know, there's the the standard 23 track album. There's a slightly altered cassette edition of it. Then there were two vinyl editions. One, I believe, was dubbed like the definitive edition, uh, w- which makes a few alterations, but is more or less the core album in there. Then there was the Fragile Deviations, which was another vinyl release that completely overhauls the album with alternate takes and unreleased material and different things like that. But we're going to talk about the standard album and let's just jump right into it. Are you ready, Kelly? I am ready. I don't know how much at all, if at all, did you delve into the liner notes behind this and some of the people involved in it? Didn't do the liner notes. Most of my my work was around just kind of making sure from a lyrical standpoint, I was tuned into to what was going on. And then occasionally the site that I was pulling the lyrics from would occasionally have a few comments uh, about the track or some things, but they didn't really get into personnel much. Not, not in the band. Towards the end, it talks about a feud with Marilyn Manson, but that's about all I picked up. Oh, don't worry. I'll get into that. Super cool. <laughs> 
for anybody who doesn't know, Nine Inch Nails consistently has been one member for essentially the first half of the band's catalog. It was led by Trent Reznor, who did the bulk of the studio work. Then he had a live band that he would take out with him. Them, along with some studio musicians, would contribute here and there to albums, but it was mainly the Trent Reznor show. After this album, he teamed up with Atticus Ross. And since then, Nine Inch Nails has been a collaborative project between the two people. And that's what it's continued as to great success, because after this album, they went on to win Grammys, an Emmy, I believe a Golden Globe, and they won an Oscar. So it worked out well for them, TV. The, the retooling of the lineup after this record. This is one of their more infamous albums. There was a long gap. This came after their album, The Downward Spiral, which commercially, I believe, is their most successful album in terms of actual sales. And there was a long gap in between them. A lot of people didn't know if they could live up to the expectations of it. It is a double album. It's a big, indulgent concept record. A common criticism of this album is that there's too much of it. There's too much going on. There's too many tracks that it could have been edited down into something a little leaner. I don't totally disagree with that. I like big indulgent records, though. Big, high concept, arty records. So I agree it could be a little leaner at times, but I also enjoy this kind of stuff. Your thoughts? So, yeah, it's a lot. We had the Prisoner Exchange identified of, of Quadrophenia from The Who and this album. And we've identified it for a while and it's taken me some time to thoughtfully get through it. I think in fact, I put more time in preparing for this than I, I have for a number of work projects. <laughs> so this was, this was significant time investment. I mean, it's because my, my general reaction is I didn't really run across anything on this album that felt like filler or was bad, maybe was driven, but I think it's kind of some of the point of this is to kind of call back into other things. That'll be an interesting parallel as we, get into the next album i'm okay with the length beyond the prep time it took me for this discussion i mean that's that's the common complaint about this record though is that there's just too much going on that it it could have been pared down to a leaner album that might have been a little stronger and i can i i hear those complaints and i can definitely see where that's coming from however it shouldn't have surprised too many people when trent reznor actually uh, used some outside production help on this one as well and much of this album was overseen in addition to trent by bob ezrin who of course did a number of the alice records and is used to these big over-the-top kind of productions yeah and pink floyd uh involvement as well a little bit of roger waters a little bit of everything for bob so i feel like he's not there to to edit bands and tell them less is more (laughs) that does not appear to be his mo so for me going into it as I was already an existing Nine Inch Nails fan, but seeing Bob Ezrin's name attached to it, I was like, yeah, I, I kind of knew I was expecting big a lot is what I was expecting going into it. So let's just jump right into it. The first song, Somewhat Damaged. I like the way that this builds up. We have these seemingly opposing elements in it, sort of like acoustic guitars and industrial sounds. Some of the guitars are a little bit reminiscent of an earlier Nine Inch Nails album called Broken. He used a lot of elements of the live band and more of a live sound with it. What were your thoughts on this track, Kelly? So I love the primary riff uh, on this. And I mean, like right out of the gate, I go like, okay, this I should be familiar with this group because I'm already really enjoying what I'm hearing. I love the the riff, the, the drum and bass. You talked about the guitar interplay. Very percussion heavy in portions, so... Mm-hmm. 
a really nice, strong, strong way to start off the album. And like I said, just got to be fired up to say, I'm going to, it's going to be a long, I'm going to have a nice time for a very long time as I listen to this. <laughs> well, you mentioned percussion, which I'm going to bring up in a number of tracks here. This is a, a particularly percussion heavy record, which is a little bit out of character for Nine Inch Nails. Like most sort of industrial leaning rock acts, a lot of the percussion tracks on their albums up until this point have largely been programmed tracks. Or, you know, session drummers just coming in to flesh stuff out. So this is a comparatively much more percussion-focused record than their previous material was. So moving right along, because, you know, there's a lot to get through here. We it are brings now number two, two of 23. <laughs> two of 23. Just burning right through it. <laughs> the Day the World Went Away. So this is a weird one. This was the first track released off of this album. It's an odd choice, because it, it doesn't... It's not a single. It fits in the album in the continuity of the album and sort of like the build up and ebb and flow of this giant, you know, double album near rock opera esque <laughs> sort of approach to it. It's an odd choice for a single though, especially because nine inch nails has had a number of like big radio hit singles, especially in the nineties. And like I said, this was coming off of their album downward spiral, which was a massive commercial success. So millions and millions of copies and made the mainstays of MTV for a while. So it was a really odd first choice, especially when there is like catchier songs <laughs> that, that come later on this record. So I feel like it was the more artistic choice to kind of introduce people to the album, even if it wasn't necessarily the wisest commercial choice. And if I remember correctly, this doesn't even really have a chorus, let alone a traditional uh, song structure to it. For whether it's a chorus or what, whatever the, the, the line, I listened to the words he'd say, but in his words, I heard decay. We're going to hear the word decay a lot on this album. It makes regular appearances. I like the melancholy-ish vocals to begin with that slowly kind of build up and get into the, the grungier kind of sound that, that you really kind of expect. And then I added at the end, what I thought would be a useful note, which was this stops suddenly. But then as I got to the majority of it, I was like, you know, I could I could put that at the end of about every one of these songs. Not everyone, but quite quite a number of them. There is a very instant stop to it from there. But I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed this one quite a bit as well. OK. And again, just moving right along here. What song were we up to, Kelly? Oh, number three. Three. So, three of 23. <laughs> just 20 more after this one. So that brings us to the frail. So one of the things that, that is not new for Nine Inch Nails on this record, all of their albums do have sort of recurring motifs in them in a much smaller way than you get on this record. It's very, the motifs sonically on this record are very heavy handed. I don't mind it though. Like I don't think it detracts from it in any way because if anything, it gives a little bit more cohesion to an album that's otherwise I think could be even more unwieldy if you didn't have that sort of connective tissue to it. This one uh, is an instrumental. There's been maybe a little bit of piano present, but it's much more prevalent here. There's, you know, ambient portions, I guess you call it ambient portions that kind of run through in the motifs that you talk about. This was the first and I believe only time kind of through the whole album where uh, one of my favorite purveyors of things, ambient Brian Eno, I felt there was, there was just some hints of, well, that's that, uh, that's got a little bit of an Eno vibe to it. You really don't, you really don't get that. You get really great ambient kind of motifs and things through the rest of the album, 
But this is one where I just kind of said, oh, that feels like a little Eno-like flourish there, which I thought was cool because I'm a big Eno fan. Okay, that brings us to number four, moving right along, The Wretched. So this is more of a what I would call a classic Nine Inch Nail sound. What probably most fans expected to hear and took them till the fourth track to get to. The commercial fans, I guess you would call it, who, who jumped on the bandwagon with Downward Spiral. This is probably more what they expected to hear, kind of straightforward, industrial rock. A balance between sort of an aggressive delivery, but with a catchy chorus. So more of a techno, more of a techno feel to, to pieces of that. Particularly proud of a couple of my notes on here that I want to share, which is this is somewhat of an unkinder, ungentler, brutal planet to a degree. I thought there was a little bit of a, a way to look at it and definitely not overproduced. was my other note. <laughs> I like that. Definitely not overproduced. Okay, just just blazing right along. That takes us to the fifth track. We're in this together. This was another single off of it. This is definitely one of my favorite songs off of the sprawling double album set. And it's a favorite of mine in general from Nine Inch Nails. There's a really long buildup in the intro. And again, another... It, it seems like a great choice for a single because it has this big, catchy chorus, but it's a seven minute plus song with a long build up to it. So, again, it, it makes it sort of an odd off kilter single. Yeah. And you see this appear in several of the songs where you do get eventually there's that that line that whether it's the chorus or there's a piece that kind of keeps coming back and back and back that just hammers and hammers and, and to really good effect, I think. And that, that definitely happens here. This one's a growling rhythmic song and I enjoyed it quite a bit, but there is that build you talk about and then it just kind of punches you through with, with uh, some of the repeated lyrics. So liked it. Okay. And that brings us to the fragile. So Kelly already mentioned percussion. This is where I'm really going to start talking about percussion. Great percussion on this track. Very out of place for not just a Nine Inch Nails album, but an industrial album in general, where you're used to the more straightforward sort of hammering approach of the drums, if not program drums and effects and things like that to create the percussive sounds. So I thought this was a really interesting approach. There, There's more of a hands-on sort of feel to it and almost like a dragging of chains kind of thing. So one of the things as we are in one, two, three, four, five, six, the sixth song of the 23, <laughs> uh, we've already got a fairly good diet of things falling apart and things decaying and things are damaged. And then we get a lot more of that in this song as well, which I'm totally down with. Very cool with that. This kind of dissonant bridge towards the end, this kind of fuzzy, fuzzy bridge towards the end going into a really guitar heavy outro. I really enjoyed quite a bit as well. So uh, a really good song. It's bulky, <laughs> there, uh, but it's, it's a good song. Excellent. Again, just moving right along here. That brings us to track number seven. We're almost at one where I can take a gigantic tangent. Awesome. <laughs> track number seven. We're almost at the done with my first of three pages of notes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> track number seven, just like you imagined. I love there's a lot of there's more piano in this track, which I always like. Um, Trent Eisner is a piano player and a keyboard player. So it's always cool to kind of hear that stuff come to the forefront, particularly. So as a synth player myself, I really loved all the distorted synth elements on this track. So real heavy drums at the start, which were very, very cool. Piano uh, was great as well. This was really just an unrelenting song as it just kind of kept going and going and going. It's just that was the the phrase that I had said to kind of come up to kind of capture it overall. But another another one that, like I said, there's not there's no skips on this for me. It's all degrees of which these are all really strong songs. Very, very nice. OK, here we go. Tangent. <laughs> we just we burn through. So much of this record already. It's time to take us down a, down a little path of a tangent here. Cl clarification for you, Mike. We've burned through the first third of this album already, but go ahead. Exactly, exactly. We're on track number eight, Kelly. Eight. <laughs> track number eight, even deeper. So 
a co-producer and mixer of this particular track is Dr. Dre. Do you know who Dr. Dre is, Kelly? Yeah, we do, we do not uh, have each other's cell phone numbers, but I am aware of Dr. J. Dre, Dre. Dr. J and Dr. Dre. Dr. J? Be, I, think, I think Dr. J produced a track later, which is... <laughs> we'll get to his. He's on disc two. Yeah. Yes. Here we go. So you know who Jimmy Iovine is, right? I do. The famed also music don't I do not have his cell phone number either. So Jimmy Iovine started Interscope Records. Interscope Records was very successful. One of their early gets that they worked very hard to get was Nine Inch Nails because Nine Inch Nails was under contract to another label and they were trapped in a really difficult contract that they were trying to get out of. So Jimmy Iovine worked very hard to get them off of that contract. They had to joint release their second record. Then Downward Spiral came out on Jimmy Iovine's Interscope Records was a gigantic hit for the band. So there was a big buildup for this particular record. Another person who was heavily involved with Interscope Records is famed rap and R&B producer Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre, it might have seemed weird to a lot of people on the surface, his involvement in this record, but he has worked on rock records. In fact, he's worked on a a vast variety of music. I'm not going to get into his whole catalog. You can go look that stuff up. But he's most known as one of the godfathers, if you will, of gangster rap music. But he's worked on on a wide variety of music, particularly through his association with Jimmy Iovine. So Jimmy Iovine knows Dr. Dre and knows Trent Reznor separately. So he puts them together because he feels like they're both really strong musicians, like-minded people in terms of their dedication to their art. And Dr. Dre ends up working on this song. So this is really important for a lot of things that come after this. So Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre sometime after this album were bemoaning the fact that they don't like the way music sounds in most speakers and headphones. So they got together with Trent Reznor to create Beats headphones. Beats headphones were manufactured by Monster, who creates, as most people know, the cables. If you're a musician, you probably use Monster cables. They make the cables for most music instruments from most touring acts these days. They're very high-end cables that they make. They made Beats headphones, which Dr. Dre was the spokesperson of, but Trent Reznor is very involved in the development of as well. Beats headphones splintered off and started a streaming music service that was based around Spotify. While everybody knows what Spotify is now, Spotify was around a lot longer than people realize, but it was primarily based in Europe because they couldn't get licensing deals here in the US from a lot of the major labels. So there's a company called Apple. Have you heard of them, Kelly? I am familiar with them, yes. <laughs> so they, they made it some kind of computer or something at some point. Apple <laughs> makes iPods, which obviously the iPod and eventual iPhone changed the way a lot of people consumed music. But people stopped buying music. So Apple wanted to get into the streaming music service as Spotify started to get a foothold here in the US so that they could try and undermine them in some way. One of the bigger problems that Apple has had consistently with their cat with their products in general, though, is that their headphones are the absolute worst. I don't know if you've ever had Apple earbuds before. They're basically like the dollar store headphones, <laughs> but sold by a major company. So Apple saw an opportunity to buy Beats off of Dr. Dre, Jimmy Iovine, Trent Reznor, and Monster, cutting Monster out of it, but wanted to keep the three of them on to, to sort of help with the transition of it. Well, while that was happening, of course, Apple wanted to get into the streaming music side of things. So they created Apple Music based around the Beats music streaming service. The people that they decided to put in charge of running the day-to-day operations of not just that transition, but of Apple from that point forward, one of them, and the I believe he's the creative director now of Apple, is Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. So everything from 
the way musicians, the cables they use from the music that they play to the actual headphones and speakers that are used by the vast majority of people to the fact that we stream the majority of our music now is because of this song and Jimmy Iovine putting these people together. Also, Apple made them the first billionaires from music because they paid $3 billion (laughs) to buy out their headphone company. I knew none of that. Yes. (laughs) So basically everything about the way the music industry is now exists, not just because of this album, because of this song. So any comments on this song? (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? (laughs) So let me talk to you about the history of fire. (laughs) Now that came to be, now Dr. Dre invented fire, almost a sonar like introduction to it, which I kind of get. That's kind of interesting and cool. Really great delivery of lyrics. So there's very good delivery of lyrics through this entire album. This is one of the high points of it, in my opinion. And I didn't know about the Dr. Dre connection, but but it makes a lot more sense to me now because one of my last notes on this was at the tail end, as we get kind of towards the outro of this, becomes reminiscent of another pillar of the gangster rock community, Peter Gabriel, who um, <laughs> in in Steam, there's a, as close as Peter Gabriel's going to get to a rap kind of thing that occurs. It's kind of a Motown rap kind of thing that, that Gabriel does towards the end of Steam that there was a, a tail end of this outro that, that again gave that a bit of a way very similar in, in some parts to it. I just kind of noticed that as well. And again, with Dr. Dre and Peter Gabriel being, you know, the, the two linchpins of gangster rap, it all makes sense. It does. If you really think about it, but yeah, one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to recommend this particular album is I get so many people talking to me about everything from the technology aspect of music to bemoaning streaming services to internet radio and things like that because of course beats one radio was created by trent reznor after he took over as creative director at apple all that kind of stuff so everything from the newer generation iphones to beats headphones and speakers to streaming music is all because of this so that's why i wanted to talk about this so for better or worse depending on your your perspective of it whether you've never listened to this album or even know anything about nine channels they affect it the way music is created the way you consume it and the products that you use to consume that music. And track number nine. <laughs> we're not even close to the, we're not even away from halfway. the halfway point. I told you I had two songs I was going off on long tangents on, but I feel, I feel like they're worth it. I feel like that was a lot of education that a lot of people don't know that. So I'm going to, I'm going to withhold official judgment until <laughs> we get to the, the second tangent <laughs> to see which one was better. <laughs> yeah. We'll go with that. Okay. So the ninth track is Pilgrimage. What I liked about this particular song, you get sort of doom metal guitars on there, which to the best of my knowledge is the first on a Nine Inch Nails song. And then at the end, there's almost like a marching band sort of thing going on, which I kind of liked. So picked up on the kind of same things you're talking about. There's that kind of very mechanical machine-like kind of start to it. Uh, There's early in the song, almost in a little bit of Zappa-esque tonality. And then... My Ezrin awareness uh, is uh, that I didn't have, you know, uh, realized that he was involved with this. But, but in my notes here, I've got that last bit, the marching band stuff you're talking about. I go, boy, this is like really familiar with like the wall. There's a section towards the end where there's this kind of crescendo coming in. It's the tear down the wall and everything's kind of coming in. I go, boy, this has got a very similar vibe to that. And not surprisingly, the guy that produced the wall <laughs> was involved. So that, that makes a heck of a lot more sense to me now. And spoiler alert, sudden stop to this song as well. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Kelly, try not to take us off on any more five-minute long tangents. Again, in my defense there, I feel like that's good information. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> 
So track number 10. No, you don't. There's an almost Alice like snarl here, which again, Bob Azrin. <laughs> so of course I liked it. What are your thoughts, Kelly? Snarl seven by 24 was my first note on that broken down see through soul. Very, very cool line from there. Great percussion again. Sudden stop. Okay, that brings us to La Mer. This is another one of my favorites on the album. Musically, so there are recurring motifs throughout this double album. Musically, though, this one is nearly identical to a song that's on the second disc of the album, which we'll be getting up to soon because we're just blazing through this thing. But the subtle variations and changes on it make it almost completely polar opposite of a song even though technically it's musically using a lot of the same material as another track so la mer of course is french for the horse no it's not it's french for the sea that would have been amazing uh, i did not know that i've never looked up as soon as you said that too i'm like i never looked up what this meant so i could i would have bought that i been like it's called the horse it's the horse but uh, the tie, the tie a little bit later, the, the C reference makes a little more sense with it being uh, La Mer. Piano heavy, kind of an interesting little instrumental in there. Nice song. I mean, of of everything on there, again, no skips at all whatsoever. This one's not, this one just didn't have the texture and standout nature that a lot of other stuff did. But I liked it. I can get that. I, I've talked to a lot of people who are not a fan of this song. Part of the reason they don't like it is there's a much more popular track on the second disc that, again, reuses most of the same music. So they just prefer that iteration of it. I like the contrast between the two. So that's why I like it. All right. The 12th song, again, just killing it. We're at the end of the first half of the album. It is called The Great Below. I like that there's different musical elements here that kind of get introduced over this ambient backdrop throughout the course of the track. So more horses. No, more sea, more sea horses, more <laughs> more sea in this one here as well. The vocal getting us that kind of soft, uh, softer vocal to kind of start off with. Lots of looping going on and vocal builds towards the end, uh, and then some other kind of nice ambient stuff going through there. So really, a really enjoyable track. Okay, now we're halfway through. What are your thoughts at this point, Kelly? This took us twelve songs, so I'm I'm starting to one not feel so bad about when I eventually recommend Sandinista. <laughs> so that's I feel that you because I did the five minute rant about headphones and streaming music and nope. iPhones. <laughs> nope, not at all. I just I think be, when you say the sentence, we're at this twelfth song and we're halfway through. <laughs> you know that's that's what we're talking about. No, I've I said I've really I've really enjoyed it. Surprised I hadn't listened to them before. I, I I love the variety that's on here and every basically every track's been enjoyable. Okay, so moving right along on disc two of the original CD release, The Way Out is Through. This is a collaboration with a frequent Nine Inch Nails collaborator, Charlie Clauser, who was very involved in the earlier records by the band. I like there. there's a lot of like sort of noisy bursts near the end of the song, which I really liked. So at the very beginning of this song, there's some music that's almost similar to Black Juju by Alice Cooper on the album that Bob Ezrin produced for them. So <laughs> that was interesting. I'm surprised you didn't know that. I was waiting for you to say something about Bob Ezrin. I was like, wait, does he not know? I did not. I did not. It makes a heck of a lot of sense now. <laughs> Some of these notes are like, oh yeah, there's a reason that that sounds like the wall. <laughs> um, th- so this one, and I think it's maybe the next song too. What I'm not a big fan of is when you really, when you've got lyrics, because I'm kind of a lyric guy, uh, when you've got lyrics and you bury them so deep in the mix that you wonder, did my headphones just short out? Was that supposed to be? Did the track go out or out there? Is that intentional or not? And I just felt there were moments in this song where the the vocals were too buried for me. Uh, so that was 
you know, it didn't ruin the song for me, but it was, I, I, I did also didn't, wasn't really super excited about that. When the voice is being used as an instrument, which happens here uh, later in the album as well, that's fine. But when it's actually delivering content and it's buried that deep, I'm, uh, I'm not as big a fan of that, but I still, I still enjoy the song. Very nice. Right, look how quickly we're moving along here. Like a rocket. Is it, this is, this is like comparable to the dwarves now at this point. Uh, well, shortly it will be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Another nine songs or so. <laughs> we were just plowing through this thing. All right. So that brings us to Into the Void. So remember when I said Lemaire shares most of the same music of another track in here? It's Into the Void. <laughs> they, if you listen to them, are, are very different songs. And it shows how you can present the same material in a, a dramatically contrasting way, which is why I liked Lemaire. Into the Void, though, is another song off of this record that was not only a single, but is easily one of the most popular songs off of it. It appeared in the movie final destination which was a big hit around that time also it has so nine inch nails are known in addition to their music they they have a lot of striking music videos like i said they were mainstays of mtv for a while and they have a lot of visually interesting music videos i think this is one of their best and it does it by just being visually and artistically interesting rather than using any kind of like shock value or you know flashy effects or anything like that it's a stripped down video of just the live band playing the song but shot in a really cool way i'm not going to give anything away we could probably include it in the blog post because i'm about to create a lot of extra work for kelly so that's really up for him (laughs) if he wants to take the extra time to include it in the blog post there but it's a song that i really like dropping videos into the blog post is a lot easier than unwinding stuff i'm going to have to deal with here shortly and that i had to deal with for an entire album by the doors so not a problem at all. I'll be happy to add that to the blog post. This was my tied for my favorite track on the album. A great percussion start. It's interesting, you know, because there there, there are the underpinnings from Lemaire in this. What you wouldn't say listening to Lemaire is it's almost got a funk sounding when you listen to Lemaire. Funk is not the word that you apply to Lemaire, but kind of still using that same structure. You almost get a funk vibe uh, in, into the void, which I liked quite a bit. Again, more, more strong lyrics about... I tried to save myself, but myself kept slipping away. That's very cool. And I just have to imagine that this song is killer live. Just It just felt like this is one of those, kind of like a lot of the Alice songs we talk about that are great on the album, but when you hear it live, it goes to a whole other level. This felt to me like one of those songs. Very nice. So again, just blazing right along. That brings us to the third track of the second half of the album, Where Is Everybody? So my note on this, going back to our our are my minimalist approach to certain things. This is jug band industrial. Does that, so does that I, make sense for you? It makes sense for me. I, I will offer a counterpoint to, to yours. Okay. I think it's, I think yours is very good. I'm going to go with dark Beck. <laughs> okay. Cause we've heard dark, dark ambient. This is dark Beck. It's what the song is. Which <laughs> I love Beck. So, so dark, give me some dark Beck. That's all right. That's pretty cool as well. It's a very dense song. It's fun. I just, it's a really enjoyable song and, and I really believe it's dark back. Very nice. Again, just moving right along. The mark has been made uh, for this song. What particularly stands out to me is the percussion in the back half. Again, going back to the percussion, the percussion is a little out of the ordinary for what you'd expect from an industrial rock record. And so it makes it stand out more on this album. Uh, multiple instrumentals on this album so far, all very enjoyable. This was my favorite so far. There's, you know, millions of songs left, but so far, so far, this is, uh, don't worry. My second, my second rant's coming up soon. <laughs> been, been counting the minutes for that. Uh, so guess what song? Uh, yeah, I have a, I have a hunch. <laughs> I have a hunch that I'm going to have to, the one I'm going to have to do some major editing on. And I think you remember, well, we'll, we'll, 
right before we get to that, I'll remind you of something that, or you could save me some time. <laughs> so Just say um, squirrel. <laughs> say, you could say squirrel, or you might want to remember Frank Zappa's use of the term pluker. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he would drop pluker in for another phrase. And, and I don't believe I have to edit pluker out of anything. <laughs> I think there was a band of Zappa cover band called pluker, by the way. Sorry to tangent on you there, but yeah, Kelly, favorite... on, we got to keep this thing. <laughs> focus. I'm sorry, sorry, Stop man. Driving us right off the rails. Keep, keep things moving along. Like I said, favorite instrumental so far. It kind of rolls in like a dark, dark fog, really bleak and cuts loose strong at the end. Very nice. So again, moving right along, we are now on the fifth track of the second half of the album. It's called Please. It has a good, you know, whisper scream effect, which Nine Shells have done many, many times. It's one of their trademarks. So again, this is something that I feel like of an album uh, that's big and includes a lot of elements. This is probably one of the more expected elements for Nine Inch Nails fans. As the notes indicate, boom, gets right to it. Just once one comes out of the gate hard and fast, some major bass in it. Very, very fun to listen to there. And shockingly enough, ends abruptly. Well, Kelly, that brings us to another song. Yes, it does. <laughs> I have a lot to say. Go, okay, imagine <laughs> you do. Because what would a mic recommendation be without a song such as this? So let me ask you before we even get into this, because this is my second tangent. I've kept the tangents down. And I feel like the first one was really worthwhile because it, it talks a lot about where music has gone and why it's gone that way and how this album ties into that. So I think that that's important. Another thing I think is important is saying fuck a bunch of times in this episode. <laughs> yeah, because it's been a while. <laughs> so those are the two things that I think are important to talk about here. <laughs> I kind of feel that this is the criteria you go through when you select albums for prisoner exchanges now. <laughs> I was like, which albums can I say fuck a lot in? Yeah. Oh, this one also has some historical elements that I guess we can talk about of a band that went on to win a bunch of awards, create headphones and, and usher streaming music into America. But you know, they say fuck a bunch on this one song. That song is Starfuckers Inc. Another single <laughs> again with the odd choices of a lot of the singles off of this record. Great music video. There's a lot to unpack here. So Nine Inch Nails in their downtime uh, had seen in the, the gap between these two records. Industrial Rock had a in the mid 90s had a really brief high point commercially so i don't know if anybody's familiar with sort of the commercial element of industrial rock there isn't one (laughs) um traditionally industrial rock music isn't necessarily huge selling i mean it's not you know like obscure technical death metal low sales but like not mainstream music and then thanks to nine inch nails who were sort of the commercial equivalent of the beatles the rolling stones and elvis all rolled into one as far as industrial music goes not just with their sales their accolades their awards running things like apple now they've done a lot they're very commercially successful everybody else is a vastly distant second and downwards even some of their contemporaries like marilyn manson who had their own you know commercial period there paled in comparison to the success level that Nine Inch Nails have achieved throughout their career. That's not a shot at Marilyn Manson. I'll get to shots at Marilyn Manson in a second. Um, (laughs) That's not a shot at them. It's just that Nine Inch Nails was so big and they helped sort of usher in this brief moment when Industrial Rock got really big. That sort of led in a small part to new metal. By the point this was, was taking over, you sort of had sort of those funk elements that you hear a little bit of in industrial music come to the forefront and create what people now refer to as new metal or at the time rap metal 
<laughs> that people refer to it as. And for the elder statesmen of a band like Nine Inch Nails, who've been around since the 80s, and at this point were already sort of veterans <laughs> of the music scene, they were not really big fans of new metal, nor were they big fans of a lot of the industrial bands that had sort of ridden their coattails in that that short period of time. So there was a band, one of those bands was Marilyn Manson. It's weird with Marilyn Manson because Marilyn Manson is famous because of Nine Inch Nails, not just because they made industrial music famous, but because they made Marilyn Manson famous. <laughs> Marilyn Manson's singer and only consistent member, Brian Warner, was a music journalist who interviewed Nine Inch Nails. He got them his demo tape and they got opening slots for Nine Inch Nails based on that. Then when Trent Reznor was on Interscope Records, he got Marilyn Manson signed to Interscope. He produced their first major label album and so on. At some point, they they veered off in different ways and the, the friendship soured. So this song, so in rap music, tying this back to gangster rap, there there's a really popular at that time, there was a really popular uh, thing in rap music of artists in a competitive spirit for the most part taking shots at each other in songs. You don't see a whole lot of that in rock music. It is ha- It has happened, though. And major artists have done it. Everybody from, you know, people like Neil Young and other mainstream acts like that who I can't think of off the top of my head. And in fact, Nine Inch Nails was actually the, the uh, subject of critique from the 80s hairband Wasp, who felt that Nine Inch Nails had borrowed some lyrics for their album Downward Spiral, and it didn't go unnoticed, and they wrote a song about it. So in turn, Nine Inch Nails decided to to take some shots at some people they felt had ridden their coattails a little bit, including Marilyn Manson, and some of the rap metal bands that had popped up, citing them as an influence, which they were not excited about the idea of influencing music that they saw as substandard to theirs. So particularly, the song takes pretty big aim at Marilyn Manson and Limp Bizkit specifically. There's a number of people though, and while it doesn't name them specifically in the song, most people inferred Limp Bizkit and Marilyn Manson from it because of their other public (laughs) shots at each other they had taken. They made it a point for the music video to to make sure that you knew who they were talking about in every part of the song. The music video shows Trent Reznor going to a carnival, and the carnival games are each based around the bands that the song takes shots at. Um, including smashing plates with Fred Durst's face, Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit on them, having a, a Courtney Love lookalike in a dunk tank, representing their their brief feud with Hole. And then Marilyn Manson, very gamely, Brian Warner himself, appears in the video as a prostitute <laughs> in, the, in the song that is partially about him. He, he very... I, I would say in a very, very good move on his part, at least could poke fun at himself a little bit in the video. Another really great video by them. However, not everybody was as excited as Marilyn Manson <laughs> about being name checked in a song in a negative way. Uh, Hole in particular had some comments about it, but nobody really cared that much about them. However, the poets of, of any generation, Limp get themselves, did respond with a song. And this is this is worth noting (laughs) um so the song was called hot dog it's their direct response to to starfuckers incorporated and it includes such poetry as ain't it a shame that you can't say fuck fuck is just a word it's all fucked up like a fucked up punk with a fucked up mouth a nine inch nail will get knocked the fuck out poetry (laughs) so needless to say nobody really thought their response equaled starfuckers incorporated 
But not only that, another thing worth noting that a lot of people don't know, if you read the credits <laughs> to their response song, Hot Dog, so to, I guess, drive home the point that they were talking about Nine Inch Nails, other than directly name-checking the band, they used lyrics from Nine Inch Nails songs <laughs> in the chorus. They used so much of the lyrics from Nine Inch Nails songs in the chorus, they had to give them a writing credit and pay them publishing off of the song that is meant to be a retaliation song towards them, which I thought was hilarious. And really, there's no greater victory in a feud with somebody than them having to pay you to make fun of you. Not the sharpest biscuit in the drawer, that's for sure. (laughs) Which is, it's kind of amazing if if you stop and think about it. So what are your thoughts on this song, sir? So editing thoughts of course and th- <laughs> thanks for the bonus lyrics you had to bring in just to, to make it to make it extra work so thanks for that driving funky kind of distorted riff very very cool lots of anger lots of anger in the song much much anger there's also a nice you're so vain drop here as well which yes. is kind of a nice little surprise as well so it's not a short song uh it's one of the longer ones on the album which song was that kelly <laughs> star plukers <laughs> ah, i was trying to get you to say it as we all know, typically Kelly is the one who takes us into explicit territory. Do you yeah. think we earned the explicit tag yet? We have. And <laughs> when I say we, you know what I mean. <laughs> we. This is a team effort. Yeah. Yeah. You talked earlier about the pairing with uh, Trent Reznor and how, you know, all this hardware started to come its way with a pairing. And you've brought nothing to this, Mike. <laughs> you know, where, where is our pairing? And you, where's, Mike? Where, where's, where is it at? <laughs> Pretty soon all you bring run an apple. All you bring me is edits. All you bring is- <laughs> I'm making you the greatest editor. Yeah, practice makes perfect. See? Now, do you think maybe somewhere in the song there's a tattoo lyric for you? No. <laughs> nope, not at all. You sure? Positive. I could delve a little bit into the lyrics. Yeah, you know, I think get, get on the bike. <laughs> Let's just get on here. We're in the <laughs> You're right. You know what? There's still more to get through here. So that brings us to the seventh track on the second half of the album, Complication. My note on this is this is Nine Inch Nails remixed by Prodigy. So one of the other sort of byproducts of the brief industrial music explosion of the mid-90s is there were a lot of big beat and dance bands and techno groups that started to sort of creep into mainstream American music. Prodigy was probably the most notable of that. And particularly the the drum loop in this sounds very much like something that would have been on a Prodigy record. So for this song, I was surprised this wasn't a cover of an Avril Lavigne song, but then I realized I misread the title, which would have been kind of cool (laughs) covering Avril at this point in the album. So once I got over that surprise and disappointment, another instrumental liked it uh, very different uh, sonically. There's almost, and it's not um, exactly, but that jangly beef heart guitar that I love so well, there's a little, there's a little, a little hint of that uh, early in the song, which was, was pretty sweet. Here's, here's one of the places where the, again, of the vocals in the mix was um this here it was it was more just utilizing voice as part of the texturing and i i liked it very nice so that again moving right along the eighth song of the second half i'm looking forward to joining you finally uh this is sort of an uncharacteristically soft vocal melody here you do get a little bit of abrasiveness with the drums though there's a little distortion on the drums and they're a little bit louder in the mix than they would otherwise be on a song that sounds this soft. So I got that, uh, that they're, they're up in the mix there. And while they're more prominent, they're, 
don't know if you want to call it staccato or sparse or whatever, but it's it's they're punching, they're there, but it's a really cool delivery of the percussion. I liked it quite a bit. I thought it added a lot to the song. Unlike the earlier song you were suggesting, there were tattoo lyrics, "Blur of Serenity." Now there's that's that's got a shot. <laughs> that's that's a that's more kind of my speed uh, from that. But that was I thought a particularly strong line, uh, but a, a pretty interesting and enjoyable song. Very nice, sir. Okay, moving right along brings us to track number nine of the second half this is called the big come down this is really propelled by a short repetitive loop that plays through almost the entire track and a lot of these songs have so much going on with them that a song that's comparatively more simplistic actually feels like it's a progression musically because you're getting something that's different if that makes sense yeah, this I'll be interested to hear your reaction to my thoughts on this song. Because I started off my notes with, wow, this is almost a, a Devo-ish start to a song. And then I kept listening to it and I go, and this is actually Devo-ish lyrics as well. So I don't know how many times Devo and Nine Inch Nails have been discussed together. But after listening to this song, I could totally envision Devo covering this song and killing it. Nice. I could see that. That the very beginning, I kind of go, oh, it's got a little kind of, it's got a little bit of the Devo feel to it. And then because I had them in the back of my mind as I listened to the rest of it, I go like, wow, I could totally hear them doing this song. And it would be, and it would be, it would be good. It would not be uh, industrial. It would be the whole kind of Devo thing. And of course, Devo 2.0 would amazingly do a wonderful version of it as well. But uh, no, I could totally see Devo covering it. So I liked it. It's not, like I said, I just think it could be. Uh, Devo's out there listening. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they're big squatties. You know, you guys might want to pop that on. They're big squatties, and they're they're also Nine Inch Nails fans because Josh Fries, the drummer of Devo, was the drummer of Nine Inch Nails for a while. So there you go. I, think, <laughs> so, I don't know why. I don't know why he's not bringing it up to the guys. We gotta <laughs> we gotta cover this song. We gotta bring one of those Nine Inch Nails songs into the Devo set list. That's right. It's gonna rock. Okay, so that brings us to number ten. It's almost over, Kelly. Are you sad? Nope. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I mean, I really do. I, I enjoyed it, but it's a lot of songs. <laughs> it is. It's a lot to get through, which is which is really the only complaint I think I would have about this album. I, and I understand what people are saying, but at the same time, you know, I do like sort of big indulgent things. So I feel like there's room for both. So that brings us to number 10, Underneath It All. So I'm going to get my Beach Boys reference in here. <laughs> there's a lot of really nice layered vocals on this song that create an almost Beach Boys-like harmony at points. Your thoughts, sir? Uh, so this is one I think it pulls back from some previous motifs uh, on, on other songs as well. The kind of stuttering rhythm loop is super cool as well. The layering you're talking about on the vocals, I, I will agree you can attach the Beach Boy-esque tag, especially since I've I've thrown back and Peter Gabriel <laughs> and Devo <laughs> into the mix. So, Well, the Devo so, one kind of does have a connection. <laughs> so, yeah. That brings us to the final song, Teardrop, and that is called Ripe with Decay. <laughs> something that Kelly's mentioned is a recurring theme here. So we mentioned, we've talked about Lycia before on the show. One of Lycia's big, uh, one of the main reasons people know who Lycia is, is bigger bands have been influenced by them and talked about what a great band they are in public settings. Nine Inch Nails is one of those bands who have declared themselves fans of Lycia. I think particularly on the opening of this song, you can really hear that. You, You get that sort of ethereal dark wave kind of sound to it but as the song progresses you get some again alice cooper-esque fly sounds <laughs> in it 
And then you get some more great piano stuff at the end, which I always like when they incorporate piano stuff into Nine Inch Nails. Lots of interesting shifts in this one. Uh, lots of stuff going on there. Lots of soundscape kind of stuff. Very cool as well. I'm going to assume so. I am not a gifted musician, and particularly one of the places where I'm not gifted is this concept of what's in tune and what's not in tune. But it does feel to me, and I feel remarkably unqualified to say this with any assurance, but it did feel like at a minimum, these instruments, particularly at the beginning, were oddly tuned, if not anything else. It just it was just kind of, you had a kind of a different, a different kind of feel going to it, but it was... Uh, added to the interest of the song and you know i don't know what's the right way to this seems like a pretty good way to end the album i'm not sure which which other route route you would go because it's just this is a nice kind of sprawling interesting instrumental makes kind of sense to me to wrap things up so thought a nice strong finish to the album yeah i agree with that and and you hit on something that that isn't wrong i would say it's out of tune or differently tuned and that's something that nine inch nails has frequently played with um so a recommendation that you've had on this show before is song exploder yep and they were on song exploder trent Reznor and atticus ross talking about one of their songs and they talk about their process a little bit and how they write the songs and a lot of it is just playing around and getting different sounds and then building the songs around that and specifically on the i don't remember what track it was but on the song exploder episode they talk about using an instrument called a voluminous garden and how you can play it more as a traditional instrument but the way that they used it on that that particular track was to lay it on a table and then hit the table <laughs> repeatedly bang into the table bump the table and record just the the sort of vibration sounds that the instrument was making on the table and use that as sort of the framework. So they they do often use odd tunings or play instruments in odd ways to get different sounds out of them. Oh, that's it, sir. What were your thoughts? That's all. <laughs> that's it. Um, no, uh, really enjoyed it. I thought, like I said, I, I'm still perplexed to why I've never never had a chance to delve into any of nine inch nails catalog especially since they had a presence in quake i should have clearly taken me to them so i don't know what's going on there but no i think it was really uh really enjoyable listen i'm glad i got a chance to to do that i'm gonna obviously explore further uh because this is pretty really cool stuff so and i like the idea of picking up mel's recommendation at some point so uh, i liked it quite a bit and the one that Mel recommended, which I, I we won't give it away, we'll let it be a surprise when we get there, is actually my favorite Nine Inch Nails album. But I, I do really enjoy this one as well, and I thought it was cool to talk about because I talk to people a lot about technology and streaming music and things like that, and I think the people aren't aware that this played a big role in that. So this is the point where we remind you, if you haven't already, if you listen to our podcasts on iTunes, please subscribe there. Uh, if you pick it up off the blog, please subscribe to the blog. And if you happen to come across these on YouTube in their highly edited format uh, for certain portions of these podcasts, be sure to go to youtube.com slash Kelly Tool, K-E-L-L-Y-T-H-U-L, or search on Squat Cobbler, and you may have to sort through some things, but you'll find us and uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. I feel like if you've listened to this entire review of a double album <laughs> over 20 tracks, if you've gotten to this point, you really should subscribe. Obviously, you enjoy our, our sultry voices. Yeah, that are, or maybe they were just hoping, hey, maybe it's going to get interesting. Maybe, maybe they're going to have a point. I'm going to wait it out. So, but, but maybe not. Maybe they liked it. some point, they're going to mention Devo. I'm waiting for the Devo call out. It was a good Devo call out. I stand by my Devo call out. It was, and I don't disagree. And like I said, Josh Freese, who is the the long, long standing drummer of Devo, did play drums with Nine Inch Nails for a while. There so. you go. All righty. Well, um, get used to somewhat lengthy uh, prisoner exchanges because we could probably get one more. Although I don't think it'll run quite as long as this, but we'll see. 
I mean, it is pretty... it is less tracks, right? Yeah, it's less yeah. tracks. You there'll be go some, off on a crazy some... tangent. Yeah, I don't. I don't think um, uh, Keith Moon founded a water ski company based off of something or whatever. But I don't know. Maybe he did. I'll do some research see if we can find some interesting quadrophenia trivia for you on our next one there. So on that note, I'm just going to say thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Stop the broadcast.